Job 38. The chapter opens with these words, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. In breaking his silence, God, in fact, fulfills Job's deepest desire, and that is that God would not remain silent. In his primal scream in chapter 3, Job says, What I feared has come upon me. What I have dreaded has happened to me. What he feared was not the loss of his children, was not the loss of his possessions or the loss of his health, but rather the loss of his God. That is, that God would be silent and not speak to him. That God would be so distant, so far away, as to be absent from Job's life. But now God comes and speaks to Job. Not because he's been forced to, because Job has protested and said that he is innocent, but because of his love and his concern for Job, his servant. So I mentioned last Sunday at the end, you will notice that when God speaks, he ignores Job's complaints. He does not respond to Job's claims of innocence. He does not correct Job for some wrongdoing as the friends would have expected. One writer said about this, these chapters, within a very short time, Job must have wondered, as we as readers still wonder today, what the long-awaited reply could have to do with his plea. Not once are the troubles of Job, which are what this book is about, are mentioned. We would think that God at least would address the deaths of his children, the loss of his possessions, the loss of his health, the loss of his friends as they have viciously attacked him. Instead, what the Lord does is he addresses him as a teacher does a student. And it is not so much a specific problem as what drives teachers nuts, is this going to be on the test type of situation, but rather the Lord seeks to open up to him new avenues of understanding. It isn't just information, but he wants to broaden Job's horizons. And he does this by looking at, by pointing to the created order and how God wisely takes care of that order. God's speaking to Job consists of two discourses. We'll look at the first one today. Each one is followed by a brief response from Job. At the start, there are three points that should be made that can be derived from the first verse, and they set the tone for the speeches. If, in fact, you skip verse number one, The rest, I guess, will make sense, but this really sets the tone and it gives direction to what is going to be said. The first thing is that God speaks. This is the first and most significant thing. This is what Job has been wanting all along, but it's something I think that we may take for granted. As we go along, we will see why this is so important, because God speaks of creation, and if you look back at Genesis 1, What is creation all about? It is God speaking. God said, let there be light. And then he said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. 
Then on another day, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the sky. And then on day six, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. As we go through today, I think you will see why I've mentioned these verses specifically, but it is that God speaks. He speaks in creation, and now as he speaks to Job, he is going to point to his creation. The second thing is that God speaks out of the storm. Some translations have out of the whirlwind. Not only does God speak, but sometimes he speaks where we least expect him to speak, like a storm or uh, a whirlwind, a tornado. This is not where we expect to hear God speak. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we read of God appearing by the awesome means of his nature, of, of creation, what he has created. For example, at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood in front of the mountain. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Darkness, storm, tornadoes, whirlwinds, this is not where we would expect to hear God speaking from. But here he speaks out of the storm. What we find in the Old Testament is that whenever God speaks out of these natural things, these things of creation, the purpose is twofold. It is to reveal and conceal the divine glory. If God, in fact, were just to let us see his divine glory, we would, we would be melted. We would, we would be de destroyed by it. And so there is a sense in which God speaks. He reveals himself, and yet at a certain at the same time, he conceals a certain part of his being. Otherwise, we would be consumed. The third thing we find in verse number one is that the name used for God is Yahweh or Jehovah. Since chapter one, this is not what we have heard. What we have heard is, in fact, Almighty, the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. Here we hear his name, I am who I am. There's something, I think, really important about this, because to speak of God as the Almighty is not inappropriate, but in fact can be somewhat detached and distant, that he's that Almighty One, the one who has all this power. Whereas when we hear him say, I am who I am, there's a sense of his being with us, that he has existence. He's not some being who's far, far away, but he has, in fact, entered into covenant with his people. One author has said of the friends, they got used to using God's name, that is Almighty, which originally spoke of grace in a way that denied grace. Go back to Genesis 17. And when God says to Abraham, I am the Lord Almighty, uh, walk before me. There is this sense of graciousness, and yet the friends have absolutely lost sight of that. So now the Lord addresses Job, 
Not the comforters, by the way. They're listening, no doubt. Just keep going off. Okay. He takes the offensive and he begins by challenging him with a question and then a command. Verse number two. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? God calls into question Job's insight. He doesn't minimize that he has moral integrity. Doesn't call him names like a worm, like Bildad did, okay? Rather, he challenges his perspective of God's rule in the world. God, in fact, is God. Job is not. But without diminishing him as a human being, okay, he, in fact, now challenges him. And the point is not that Job, in fact, has sinned in this, but that his limited understanding has hindered him from taking the right path. He is argued based on his own personal integrity, and he has misrepresented the divine plan or the divine counsel. God wants to know, who is this that's speaking? Well, obviously God knows who it is, but it is a challenge. And then there is a command, verse number three, brace yourself like a man. Other translations have gird up your loins. It means literally to take the ends of your robe and tuck them into your belt so they won't hinder you so you can get about the task. I will question you and you will answer me. It's interesting that earlier in the book, in chapter 13, Job had said the same thing to God. He had said, summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply. Job wanted to be the one in charge, and now it's reversed. And God says, listen, I'm going to do the talking, and you brace yourself and see if you can answer what I say. A few words about these chapters that we're going to be studying this Sunday and the Lord willing next Sunday. And that is that the language and the images are poetic, not scientific. Okay, And yet, and yet there is great insight that until the modern age, I I would argue, has not really been fully discovered and in many ways still has not. The point of these chapters is God has wisdom, God has power, Job does not. When you compare God's wisdom to Job's, there's no comparison. When you look at God's power, well, Job's power obviously is not anything because look at his condition. But there is an important underlying thing here that we may lose sight of if we're not careful. Ask yourself, what did God think of Job? What did he think of Job? God said to Satan on two occasions in chapter 1, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I would argue that God loves Job. And we have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we just see this stern teacher sort of shaking his fist at this, this student who doesn't get the point. And that's not it at all. God loves Job. And when we get to the end of this book in chapter 42, God says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Of all the participants in this book, there have been three friends and then Elihu, 
Who does God speak to? He speaks to Job. That is important. I would suggest to you then that these chapters are not an attack on Job, but a teaching session involving God and one whom he loves dearly. That's the point of the book. And we will lose that. We'll lose, if we lose sight of that, we will lose the book of Job. The first session, the first interrogation, deals with the created order. It begins in uh, chapter 38, verse 4, and goes to the end of chapter 39. Um, the Lord questions Job on two particular points. The first is the structure of the world, the fundamental things, how the world came to be. And then secondly, the maintenance of that world that God created. First of all, the structure of the world. He begins with the foundational matters. In this, in this series of questions, and that's what we'll find through these chapters, is that God keeps asking Job questions. He deals with the initial stages of creation, and he uses various images. Job has spoken a lot of his doubts. He's not sure that God rules the world in righteousness. And God now questions him as to whether he really understands what's going on. Does he know how the world was made? In order to understand God's justice, one must understand God's creation. And if you lose sight of the creation, then you will lose sight of his justice. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who stretched off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels, or the sons of God, shouted for joy? One could argue that here at the beginning, God's not playing fair by playing, were you there back at the beginning? Because, of course, Job wasn't there at creation. But Job has brought this on himself by claiming that he has superior wisdom, even perhaps to God himself. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, God's companion in creation was wisdom. If you look at Proverbs chapter 8, it's a wonderful passage on wisdom. And wisdom was God's companion in creation. Was Job the companion in creation? No, no, he wasn't. God says, tell me if you understand. He understands basic knowledge about the foundation of the earth, the dimensions, the cornerstone. How can he then expect to successfully dispute with God? On the day that the Lord laid the foundation, and again, this is poetic language, the morning stars, the angels, the sons of God sang for joy, but there were no human beings present yet, certainly not Job. And then verses 8 through 11, we see God almost as a midwife bringing creation into being. Verse 8, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Interesting imagery here. The imagery is that of pregnancy and of giving birth. The sea is in the womb, 
and then it bursts forth. It is as though a woman's water breaks. Creation's water breaks and the sea comes forth. But it is God who sets the boundaries and said, okay, this, this is the coastline. This is where you may go and no farther. Let me say something that may not have occurred to you, but certainly has occurred to other people. There is no hint here of sexual contact between God and creation. God being male and creation being female. It's a very pagan belief. There are people who see the gods as male and the creation as female. Um, no, God is the creator. And he, de- he determines, sees very characteristic. These are the boundaries and you cannot go past them. So God is the one who is the master builder. He sets the foundation. He is the midwife, but he's also a military commander. He's a general. Look, if you would, at verses 12 through 15. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. A couple of interesting things happen in these verses. First of all, it is a reminder of creation. The first day God said, let there be light. And dawn is in a sense a reenactment of that. When the sun comes up, it is as though God is saying once again, let there be light. He's the one who does it not us. And it isn't some impersonal, mechanical law that governs that, oh, okay, if if you can Google it, look on your your cell phone, it'll tell you what time sunrise is tomorrow. So you're like, yeah, we got that covered. And we fail to realize that it is God who calls it into being. We cannot say to the sun, you will rise tomorrow at such and such a time. We cannot command. We may know that that will happen by God's grace, but we cannot command it. The second thing that's interesting here is that the wicked are mentioned. Um, I think it's the only part in these two speeches in which human beings are mentioned. And they are mentioned in the context of light and darkness. The coming of the dawn ends the darkness in which the wicked do their deeds. Men prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, Jesus tells Nicodemus. Job mentioned this, by the way, in his answer to Eliphaz's final speech. Those who rebel against the light, there are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no, I will see me. And he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses. But by day, they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their mourning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. There's something else. And in verse number 15, you will notice they raise their arm, but God breaks their arm. Because not only is he in charge of creation, he is the God of justice. And he will bring them to justice. The the interrogation continues in verses 16 through 24. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea 
or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered into the, uh, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Here God deals with the depths of the sea, verses 16 to 18, and then the distant east, and then the skies in verses 22 to 24. And I suspect that we come now to a part of the speech which is less intimidating to us as modern people because of the discoveries that human beings have made. So, for example, we are asked, have we traveled to the journey, have we journeyed to the springs of the sea? And in the modern age, in fact, people have gone down and found that at the bottom of the ocean there are fresh water springs. So now we know that. So we would say to God, yes, we do know that. Um, but here God's speaking to Job and he wants, come on Job, tell me verse 4, tell me if you understand verse 18, tell me if you know all this and then verse 21, surely you know for you were already born you have lived so many years without doubt there is I think a healthy dose of sarcasm here and the point is not to get Job to answer God the point is for Job to think And that's why I think if we read Job today in our modern historical context, we will, in fact, miss the point because we'll be trying to figure out the answers to God's questions when, in fact, what God wants us to do is to think. So the depths of the sea, we've learned quite a bit about that. The expanses of the earth. The earth is 24,901 miles in, in circumference. We know these things. We now have GPS. We know where we are at any moment of the day. And we know the speed of light, the place where light dwells, 186,000 miles per second. Okay, the gates of death, we might have a little problem with that. Um, But we'd say this is poetic and not scientific. But then we, we would immediately flip back and say, yeah, but we know all the science to these things. No. God's purpose is for us to think, not to answer. And I would suggest to you that if God spoke to you out of the storm as he does to Job, you would, if you could speak, answer something along the line that Job does in chapter 40. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I actually think that's in chapter 42. But I think that the beauty and the power of these chapters is lost on us today because we're trying to figure out the answers to all these things instead of sitting down and thinking about what God wants us to think about. So he has talked about the structure of the world. God now moves to the second part, how he maintains this world that he had created. I want to be careful 
that I don't make too sharp of a distinction between these two things. Um, to say, well, God created the world and now he maintains the world. Because I would argue that God's maintenance of the world is in fact a part of his creating of the world. We should not think that God created the world a long time ago um, and now he maintains it. As Jesus told uh, his listeners, my father is always at his work to this very day. God does say to Job, you know, I laid the foundation, the cornerstone, all these things. I think pointing to the reality of a beginning, but not the ending of his work of creation. So in our passage, we will transition from the origins of the world to the maintenance of the world. And it's much more subtle, I think, than we imagine, and perhaps more subtle than I'm conveying to you. So in verses 8 through 11, as we saw, God is presented as a midwife at the creation of the seas. In verses 28 to 20, uh, 30, he is the implied father of rain, dew, the implied mother of ice and frost. In verses 22 to 24, God speaks of the harsher aspects of weather, snow, hail, lightning, and wind. And it continues in verse 25 when he speaks of the torrents of rain and the thunderstorm. The lesson in our passage is that God is in control of what he has created, both inanimate or inorganic aspects, as well as the animate aspects. Let's look at the inanimate first in verses 25 to 38. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the beautiful or the chains of Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations and their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who endowed, who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens? when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together. Boy, there's a lot that could be said about this passage. Um, but I'll, I'll mention one. Uh, some years ago, uh, a panel of economists were asked, they were on a TV show, and they were asked questions about the economy. And the final question was, what is the greatest influence on the world economy. And they all gave the same answer. The weather. The weather. For all our efforts to manage money in the stock market in order to control the economy, the reality is there is a factor completely out of human control, and that is the weather, which can determine prosperity and recession, deficits and surpluses. We are not in control. God is. And it is not that he is somehow 
controlling some big mechanism, some type of clock that he winds up or he just you know, tinkers with to make sure that it runs on time. He is in control of all aspects of his creation, from the rain and thunderstorms to constellations, which we see as fixed in the sky, the Pleiades, Orion, the great hunter, or the bear, Ursa Major, the planets as well. There is something here, though, that may throw us, and that is when God asks him, does he know the laws of the heavens? Um, because we tend to think of laws as things that are written down. They're in books. You know, it's black and white. There is the law. We don't think of them as living declarations. We sang today Tessa's favorite hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. It isn't that God created the stars and the moon thousands and thousands of years ago and now they, they're just there because he set up these laws. No, God is always speaking and when he speaks, that is law. And Job, do you know the laws of heaven? Well, obviously he does not. And now... God turns to the animate aspect of creation, beginning in verse number 39 of chapter 38 to the end of chapter 39. See, God not only rules over the big things like constellations, but the small things as well. And as we come to see, all of God's creation is unique. Verse 39, do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions? when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the morning goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know what time they give birth? Or do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him in the furrow with a, a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and she lets them warm in the sun in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? He paws fiercely, rejoicing in his strength, and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. 
he does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts, Aha! He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders, and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there he seeks out his food. His eyes detect it from afar. His young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there he is. It's an amazing passage. There is a commonality and yet a certain uniqueness, as God speaks to Job here, of the animal kingdom. A dozen animals and creatures are mentioned here. Lion, raven, mountain, goat, doe or deer, wild donkey, wild ox, ostrich, horse, locust, hawk, eagle. Each has the characteristic of being a living being, a living creature, and yet fearfully and wonderfully different. So the lions and ravens he speaks of and the care that God has for them in terms of finding food for their young. Whether it is the mighty lion or the unclean, ritually unclean raven, God provides for them. They have similar diets. The lions wait in ambush for their young. The ravens tend to flit around and they pick clean the carcasses left behind by a hunting animal. God provides for them both. Pray for the lion food for the ravens. Then he speaks of the mountain goats and the deer. And who cares for them? There's no midwife there. There's no vet there to take care of them as they give birth. Nobody watches over them. No human being does or protects them. But they need no helper. And after the young are delivered, they grow, they leave home. They never return. But God cares for them. There is the wild donkey, I love this passage, who sort of sniffs the air and laughs at what's going on in town because he is free to do as he wants. He avoids human beings, he roams the wilderness, and he searches for food, all the while laughing at civilization. The wild ox, unlike his domesticated counterpart, is not tamed to serve. He does whatever he wants. And in this list of God's creatures, we find certain things um, that are not included. We would not include them in an orderly creation. They are unpredictable. We don't know when, in fact, a mountain goat is going to give birth or a deer. They have freedom. The wild donkey does. We have the ox who is stubborn, the ostrich who is just utterly foolish, the courage of the horse of war, the wisdom of the migrating hawk who's going south, and the perspective of the high-nesting eagle. And what we find is within each of these animals is a sort of two sides of the same coin, I guess you could put it. They are gifted, and yet they are flawed. They have graces, they have faults. They have charms, but they also have handicaps. So, for example, the ostrich is swift, 
but she is deprived of just simple wisdom of be careful that you don't step on the egg that you have just laid. One might be tempted to write the ostrich off as sort of a cruel trick of nature, a waste of time. But no, God is the creator and he doesn't think the way we do. His wisdom is far greater than ours. And this includes the way he acts in our lives. Job, are you listening? The same God who made the ostrich is the God who made you, Job. And he knows what he's doing. There are a number of things we can take from this past. I'll just mention three here in closing. First of all, it is God who created the world. He laid the foundation according to plan. And he brought forth the seas. He established their boundaries. And when we think of God and justice, we must do so in the light of God and creation. God knows exactly what he is doing. We are all subject to his authority. Job seems to have lost sight of that. The second thing is there is nothing, there is no aspect of creation beyond God's governing authority. There is no place where we can go and say, okay, God is not in charge here. Whether it be in the deepest recesses of the sea, the gates of death, the vast expanse of the earth, the storehouses of snow and hail, the place of light and darkness, the path of the thunderstorm. It is God who is in control. He has the authority. We do not. And this is important. I haven't mentioned it, but this is important. God manages the various forces in the world for the benefit of all creation. It isn't just about us as human beings, which is, I think, the way that we tend to think. So in, in chapter 38, verses 25 to 27, we find that God commands rain to travel to the desert, to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one on, in it. We think, God, that's not very efficient. There are no human beings living there. Well, there are other creatures that live there. And they need the rain too. It isn't just about human beings. And the implication is if we were in charge, we would not waste such a precious commodity as rain on, on silly little animals or grass or flowers that might grow in the desert. We would direct it for our own benefit. We would preserve it for cultivated lands. We would neglect the desert and we would be wrong. If we had our way, there wouldn't be storms or hail, frost, snow maybe, but just not too much. But is there any reason why they should not exist? God and his wisdom manages all the forces that we find in creation. And he does so in a way that bears witness to the fact that he is wise. And if God is wise in dealing with creation, Thing like, things like rain or snow, do you not think he acts in our lives with wisdom as well? This must be one of the reasons that in this first speech, God speaks of the heights and depths and vastness of creation and of the amazing phenomena and the various animals that fill it. It points to the fact of his work, his greatness, the vastness of his authority. 
without being cruel, God tells Job that he has, there's more to think about than just his own problems. God has more to think about than Job's problems. God is concerned. He loves Job. But in the same way that I think difficulties can make us become very self-focused, that we think only on ourselves, and I think in this pandemic, that's really been illustrated. It's all about us. We tend not to reach out to others. Um, Job is reminded that his perspective is far too narrow. Yes, he's gone through a lot. He's lost his children, he's lost his possessions, lost his wife, lost his friends, his health. He's, he's sitting on, in the city dump. But what about the wild goats that give birth? What about the lions? What about the ravens? There are other aspects to creation. Which leads me to the third point, and perhaps I make too much of this, but God is the God of wild animals. He is the God of wild animals. On the sixth day of creation, we are told that God created wild animals. It's like, wait a minute. This is, is, isn't this the perfect creation? Until Adam and Eve screwed up, but until then, wasn't it perfect? Why are there wild animals? Why isn't everything domesticated? I think it shows that we have a very narrow perspective as well. God has assigned to them territory that is theirs. It is there that they are to live. But as human beings, oftentimes we think that it's all about us. This is a beautiful passage in which God describes how he cares for wild animals. And we find that God provides them with food that he watches over their pregnancies and the deliveries of their babies, the laying of eggs, even of the silly ostrich. And he gives the wild donkey and the wild ox a love of freedom. They love to be free. And as I said, though, it isn't as though we should somehow idealize and romanticize wild animals, the wild kingdom, because we find that there is, in fact, they have gifts, but they also have flaws. The ostrich as fast as can be, but not really too smart. God has not imbued her with wisdom. They have graces, they have faults. They have charms, they have handicaps. So much so that at the end of it all, a human being might be tempted to say, this is not the way I would have done creation. This is not the way I would have done things. And this has been Job's contention all along. I'm a righteous man. I haven't done anything wrong. Look at me suffering. This is not the way I would have done things. And now God speaks to him out of the storm and says, look at what I've done. Have you done these things? I created the world. I maintain it. And it may not make sense to you but I know what I'm doing. The Lord willing, we will continue next Sunday as God speaks once again to Job.
Let's pray together. Our Father living when and where we do, as modern people, we are problem solvers. You tell us something, give us a question, we want to find the answer. Rather than considering that the question may, in fact, challenge us to think in new and different ways. Job and his friends seem to have one-track minds. Cause and effect. You do good things, good things happen to you. You do bad things, then you suffer. Job is suffering, but he hasn't done anything bad. It doesn't make sense to him. And you and your grace point to the wonder of your creation. A creation that is perhaps by human standards, ridiculous by its diversity, by its inefficiency, by the fact that they're even wild animals. We seem to want to tame them all. And yet you have a purpose. And in the same way that we would not create the world the way that you did, we would not let things happen to us or to others that are happening. But we're not you. We're not the creator. The same way that there is great diversity in your creation, with graces and faults, in our lives there are bright days and dark days. In the bright days, perhaps we don't think about why is everything going so well or seeming to go well. In dark days, we wonder, God, do you know what you're doing? I thank you for the wonder of these chapters. May they challenge us to think in new ways, to realize that, yes, in fact, you do know exactly what you are doing. You have wisdom, something of which we are sorely lacking. Spirit, we pray that you would drive these truths home to our hearts, cause us to think on them, not to try to answer them, but to think in new ways, to think your thoughts after you. I thank you for this time that we could gather to worship. We remember again Lonnie and Jacob and ask that you would touch them, strengthen them, restore them. For each one of us that we would have a sense of your presence in the coming days. Watch over Tom as he has his surgery. Watch over each one of us as we walk through the world in the coming days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.